Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm in New York City. I'm recording this in 2019, but you're listening to this in 2020. Happy New Year. And welcome, Adam Davidson. Hey, Happy New Year. Thank you, sir. It will be a good New Year. I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe you in a sentence or less. You make awesome content. You're a journalist, podcast entrepreneur, podcast pioneer, author. Am I missing anything? Um, dad, dad, Brooklyn, dad, Brooklyn welcome dad. Brooklyn dad. This is a yes. safe space for us. I'm a print and audio, I guess. Yeah. Good job. Bald. I'm bald. The, the, the putative reason you're here is to talk about, did I use putative right? To talk about your new book, The Passion Economy, which you can and should buy right now. But I want to talk to you about podcasting and journalism and of course, Donald Trump. Sure. Where should I, we start? Well, let's um, do the book. Let's do topic. Eight. Sure, yeah. I mean that that's um, that would make Knopp very happy, and it would make me happy because I'm very proud of it. It's, it's got a smiley face on the cover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so much of my last I don't know 20 years has been being a journalist covering really bad things. I um, I was in Iraq during yeah. the the first year of the U.S. occupation. I came home and. A couple of years later, covered the, or a few years later, covered the financial crisis. So from disaster to disaster. Uh, then, I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second because we're going to talk about it at length. But Adam is one of the two people behind the giant pool of money, which is the definitive sort of ex- explanation. Well, that and the big short, which you're also involved with. The definitive explanation of the subprime crisis. It is a great, great, great piece of audio. It came out in 2008. Yeah, 2008. If you have not heard it, even if you haven't heard it in a while, go back and listen to it. It sets the template for all the great podcasts you've ever heard since. So, yeah, thank Alex, you well, thank you very that. much. That's very lovely. It was honestly felt like we're doing an hour of This American Life on mortgage finance. It seemed like a long shot, but I, I'm very proud of how it turned out. Alex Bloomberg and I, and then Alex and I co-ran and co-founded Planet Money at NPR, which was our initial attempt to try and make business economics accessible and even sometimes enjoyable for a lay audience. You did a great job. Thank you. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Stop yeah. this podcast. Well, listen to this podcast and the ads and, and tell the advertisers you listen to us, but then go back and listen to the giant pool of money. Yeah. It's genius. Thank you very much. And I think um, I came to business and economics journalism very late I, in my 30s. I, I grew up not far from here in Greenwich Village in all artist housing. My dad's an actor. My mom has run various nonprofit arts groups, dance, a lot of dance. And growing up in the 70s in the village in all artist housing, everything was open. You could talk about sex and drugs and everything, but there's this topic nobody wanted to talk about, which was money. And so how do you rebel against a childhood 
of rebels. You go into banking. You go into banking. That felt too boring, yeah. but I, I went into finance. You wrote about journalism. bankers. Yes, and wrote about bankers and tried to translate them to people like my parents who are smart and curious but just can't even think about those topics. And just because I became a business journalist right at a time of unbelievable upheaval, most of my work has been very dark. It's been about the economic implications of the Iraq war on Iraqis, on Americans, on the Middle East, the financial crisis. I spent a lot of time in Haiti after the earthquake covering the inequality and and uh, the sort of death of a version of the American dream. And that is all important work, and I'm glad I did it, and we'll still do more of it. But along the way, I was part of telling a story about the economy is, is really trying to make sense in, in kind of sweeping terms about what's going on. And one thing that started to become clear to me is that there's also a really optimistic good news story in this economy. It's not the only story, but it it exists. And I started collecting these sort of small business people, entrepreneurs. These aren't billionaires. These aren't CEOs of, of huge tech companies. I don't, I don't very few of the people in the book got venture funding or would even know what venture funding is. But they're people who figured out how the forces that are overwhelming us, automation, outsourcing, global trade, could actually enable them to have a better life. So and, this is part, you're telling their stories and then you're explicitly telling people, here's how you could run your own business. And even if you don't run your own business, if you're an employee how you can sort of make this world work for you. Yes, exactly. And trying to— Explicitly a positive—self-help? Um, how do you feel about self-help? I mean, I, yeah, I think I think I got to own it. I think I got to own that this is a self-help. I mean, it's a narrative. It's most, you know, 90-something percent of the words are just telling stories about interesting yeah. people, hopefully interesting stories, but teasing out lessons that are applicable, that people can use. But So it's not like— there's one little chapter that's like, here are the actual rules. Yeah, most of it in the is rules narrative. section. Yeah, most of it is just telling the stories about people I fell in love with, as you do with people you interview. And and my first note is here, this is a uh, have your cake and eat it too thesis. It right? is, You can yeah. do a thing you like, but you feel passionate about, hence the name, and you can make it work for you economically. Yes. Sounds too good to be true, Adam Davidson. <laughs> Yeah, and it, I certainly don't want to imply it's easy. There's a lot of struggle in this book or that it's just a given, that whatever you happen to like to do, if you do a lot of that, you're going to make money. That's certainly not my view. My view is that I have the saying that the best of the 21st century could combine the best of the 19th and the best of the 20th. So if you think of most of human history, most people were sort of hustling for their daily bread. I mean, lot, yep. most of them were either farmers or small craftspeople or whatever, and they had a very direct and intimate relationship with their customers. But they had no scale. They had no ability to transport their goods across long distances unless they were a very small subset yep. of extreme luxury goods. Then the 20th century is all about scale. It's all about making the same crappy soap or the same crappy potato chips more and more and more, faster, faster and cheaper, faster and cheaper, and getting them everywhere. Markets. And that the the ability to, you know, shipping, logistics, those were things, manufacturing efficiencies, that was the core thrust, not just in the U.S., but everywhere, uh, almost everywhere. And 
that world for most of the 20th century required a lot of people. It just took a lot of factory workers and truck drivers and accountants and draftspeople to make, you know, to get a Snickers bar from Chicago to yep. Shanghai. And now we're sort of reaching the end of that, at least as a viable, for many people in this country, that's no longer a viable part of the economy for them because a lot of it's just sort of moved out. It's 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 been outsourced or it involves robots and there's less and less use for people in this country doing exactly. that kind of work. And if you do want to be a multi-billionaire, go for some scaly thing and, and go crazy. Yep. But- you're not going to need a lot of people. And the people you need, you're going to be able to source around the world and pay them. You may never meet them. You may never meet them, and you don't have to pay them very well. Yeah. And so it is no longer that kind of, you know, sort of escalator to the middle class that that defined so much of America in the 20th century. But the same tools, the kind of, you know, basic infrastructure like the ability to find people around the world who share a passion for, say, chocolate or a particular, um, it can be something Etsy-like, you know, a particular yeah. craft, but it can also be more pragmatic, you know, an approach to accounting, a way of plowing fields for farmers. There's there's niche interests, niche needs, some of them very practical needs, some of them more consumer, just I happen to like that kind of chocolate or whatever. And there's now a whole suite of tools that every one of us can access that you can find your the thing you alone can make or do. You can find those people sprinkled around the world who want that thing and are willing to pay a premium for it. And you can deliver it across long distances, either physically or as a service. And that has never happened before in human history. And so those people who figure that out, and this book is filled with... I, I made a point. I didn't want, you know, someone who went to Harvard and then went to Stanford yep. Business School and their dad's a venture capitalist. I didn't want people who are sort of set up for success. So the people in this book are people who very few of them went to elite schools. Some of them didn't go to college at all. Very few of them come from money or had a easy access to wealth. Very few of them, maybe none of them, are particularly sophisticated in tech. Yeah. They just were people who were able to identify something they loved doing, they uniquely knew how to do, and they could find people around the world who wanted that. And you, you say um, you say in the, in the rules, you actually don't want to scale this business. You want it to grow. But the point here is not for you to figure out how to do something and then replicate it in using internet scale. You actually sort of want this to be a uh, what VCs derisively call a lifestyle business. This is a celebration of the well-earning lifestyle business. Yeah. So the people in this book, most of them make, I would guess, you know, decent six-figure salaries and are amassing decent seven-figure wealth. So these are people who, by almost all standards in America, are well-off and, and comfortable. They're achieving the American dream. But these are not the people who, people in Silicon Valley or people, you know, on Wall Street are going to be like, wow, I want to be one of those people. Right. I didn't want to talk to those people. These are, I don't want to be one of those people. This is the book version of Shark Tank in some ways, right? The way that sort of the Shark Tank idea of, I figured out how to make this widget or good cookie or whatever, and they go to, they, you know, you can talk about the merits of Shark Tank, but it's that same sort of impulse. Like, yeah. I don't have a special skill, but I'd like this thing. I made it. I think I should be able to build a business around it. Yes, and it happens to be the 
Very few of the people in the book have investors. It's mostly bootstrapped. Some of these are clearly investable businesses, but investors come with non-monetary yep. costs as well as monetary costs that constrain your ability to... So just to give examples of some of the people, there's an Amish family that makes really great machinery for horse-drawn farming. And it was amazing to me how much innovation there still is to be made. I mean, you, you know, we've been... Human beings have been farming with beasts of burden for thousands of years, yet these every year they come out with new innovations that no one's ever thought of, and they distribute them around the world. There's a couple here in New York who create clothing for androgynous women and non uh, gender non-binary folks who want to wear menswear-inspired clothing that fits a woman's body. There's a evangelical Christian accountant in South Carolina who I have now hired as my main consultant because he's so brilliant and he does so many things that you don't think an accountant does. He really just takes over your, he helps you understand how to think about money in a rich way. So it's a, it's a wide range of folks. And sort of my internal test was these are people who are really enjoying life and they're, and work is a really rich and happy part of their and, life. And, the, and there's something about the economy and technology that lets them do this today and they couldn't have done it 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Exactly, exactly. This, this reminds me a little bit of, and I was just saying, I can't remember if it was on air or off air, that, that I'm, I'm a little tired of dystopia and I like, I like some techno-utopian uh, thought. It would be nice to have some more of that back. But I am. Everyone's doing their, their, you know, decade in review and going back and pulling out old Wired articles or you know, Fast Company brand. There's a sort of late '90s. You can do this. Here's how to use and enable the. Here's how technology like eBay is going to allow you to create a new future for yourself. And now the pendulum has swung back, and we've discovered that actually all these things have hidden costs or very explicit costs. And one of the things is you're talking about um, people who figured out how to use technology to make this stuff work. I'm keep thinking if you make clothing for androgynous people and it becomes remotely successful. Everything that you did to make that work is going to be replicated at a lower cost because of technology, because we have a borderless economy. Someone in China is going to make this stuff. Someone in, in a basement in Michigan is going to figure out how to drop ship it, and they'll, they'll just rip it off. Um, and so all the technology that makes this possible for you to be happy also can then undercut it, and we're back on that same hamster wheel. Yeah, I mean, so, and that is—so some folks find that they can find a niche— Big enough to make them have a living, but not so big that anyone else will care about. So horse-drawn farm equipment, like John Deere and Caterpillar, are not going to show up one day and just take over that business because, I mean, it's extremely capital-intensive yeah. and there's— And there, some services, right? You can't replicate. You need to <laughs> do the work. You need to look at the exactly. person. And it needs to happen in a specific place. You can't— take it. You can't export that work, and it has to happen in a certain place. Exactly. But things like apparel, food, we have enormous systems to very quickly essentially copy or steal other people's ideas and market them through drop. Exactly. So in those areas, I think, and I, actually, I think this is true for all the people that I talk about in the book, and it's probably true for most of us in life, the way you make money is not the product. It's not a one-time thing. Oh, I now have this product. I'm going to make money on this product for the next 50 years. It's the ongoing engagement with a very specific audience. I mean, that certainly this podcast, yep. our podcasts, you know, when we think about at, at my new company, Three Uncanny Four, which is a partnership with Sony Music to create a lot of podcasts, we'll and we'll get there. But, you know, that in 
engagement with the audience is the real precious resource more than any individual show. And when you're engaged with an audience that's big enough that you can actually make a buck, and that depends on the business. If it's a high capital good product like the horse-drawn farm equipment, you might only need 20,000 people in your total addressable market because they're spending five, twenty, fifty thousand dollars yep. on equipment. If it's chocolate bars, you might need many, many millions of people to make that business work. But as you know that audience, as you stay engaged with that audience in a way that Procter and Gamble just can't, because that audience is not just women 35 to 54, it's a specific group of people who have specific needs, then you can continue to stay ahead of the large companies, I believe. And, you know, in many cases, you end up being bought out, perhaps, if that's yeah. the path you want to go I mean, by. You mentioned the chocolate example, and it's in the book. And I keep thinking when I drop into Whole Foods, right, which is is, is designed for people who would want to get a specific kind of chocolate. There's a million different kinds of chocolate there. And I assume there are many, many more millions of, of Whole Food-ready chocolate that is not there. Um, and, you know, again, because I watch Shark Tank and I know a little bit about business, I know that getting into Whole Foods is insanely difficult. And so even sort of working through that, I mean, obviously life is hard and things are difficult and not everyone's going to succeed. But you think there are ways for you to make a thing, you have some kind of scale but not too much scale, and, and this can work. Yes, and for a lot of people, channels like Whole Foods or other big box retailers yeah. or whatever is, is the right channel, but for other people, it's not. And when you think about when you go to Whole Foods and you look at a big display of chocolate or you look at a big display of soaps, you'll probably, if you pay attention, you'll realize at a barely conscious or completely unconscious level, you're just dismissing half the stuff because it's not – or yeah. not nine-tenths of the stuff because it's not for you. Um, it's either too hippie or too scientific or too focused on the environment or not focused enough on the environment or you, whatever you it is. You don't know what it is. Or you just don't know what it is. And you'll probably notice there's some things that you just – your hands go towards. And there's a lot of discipline that's required. Uh, th this is not a book saying just do whatever feels right and yeah. it'll be fine. I mean, you you know, branding consumer packaged goods is really important. And knowing if you've decided my target is Park Slope dads between 40 and 60, then knowing what colors we respond to and knowing what – typography we respond to, and you might have to outsource that and find someone who who can help you with that. Those are all very important, and, di and there are disciplines. So, you know, what I talk about is step one is finding your own passion, which is a process. It's not, I don't believe we're all just born fully formed with a yeah. passion, or if you're not, then you're screwed for the rest of your life. It's It can take years. It took me, you know, 15 years of being a working journalist to be like, oh, my thing is explaining business and economics to a broad lay audience. I had, if and you then, told me that at 28, I would have been like, that doesn't sound like anything I want to do. And, and then something happened that sort of made that a much more um, interesting and then potentially lucrative thing for you, yes, right? Exactly. Which is exactly, the financial crisis. Financial crisis, and also there's an on-demand audio, right? Podcasting exactly. Which created is, this. You, you mentioned there that, you know, you, you know a lot, bunch of radio people, and that was a thing you did because you liked radio but it was never going to be more than a middle-class job. And now you say, I know several podcast millionaires. Um, I think you said dozens. Do you say dozens? Yeah, we actually, I had to add them up. The fact checker yeah. made me add them up. And you, Do you list them all by name? I don't. I don't list any of them by name. I can guess some of them. You can, you definitely, you've had some of them on this show. Yeah, I imagine yeah. so. Um, yeah. 
I want to be a podcast millionaire. Yeah. But I was thinking when you said that, I'm like, oh, this is, I, I wonder how much of this is sort of self-selection bias on your part. Like, this thing worked for me. I can sort of, I can back into this. Um, this must then be replicable for many other people. Whereas, you know what, maybe this is just the, the God bless us for being in a podcast bubble. But if we're relying on on sort of weird um, the weird alchemy of luck and people overpaying for for podcast companies or whatever it is, that that's not actually a replicable strategy. Yeah, it actually it started with that accountant in South Carolina. Someone just I was talking to someone, and they said, "You got to meet this guy." And when you hear accountant in South Carolina, you don't think, "Oh, that person." That's a good story. That's a good story. They're going to change my life. But Jason Blummer really had intuited a lot of this, and and I really was thrilled to tell his story. It was much later that I realized that the conditions he faced in accounting, the conditions the Amish faced, the conditions chocolate makers faced, are, there are things that are generalizable, and that one of the places I think they are generalizable to is audio and podcasting, which is basically, and, and that Actually, I think the sh- transition from radio to podcasting happens to be a really good example, which is, you know, I entered public radio in 1992, and when it was kind of like getting a job in the post office, like you— That's your job. That's your job. These are mostly union shops. Once you pass a certain threshold, it's like, I'm going to be working here till I'm 65. If I'm really, really lucky, you know, one day I'll make $110,000 a year— and I'll have an okay 401k for 3B because it's all nonprofit. And then— I like what I do. I'm, I won't get wealthy doing it. But I believe in the mission. Yep. It's it's satisfying. I'm working with other people who are mission-driven. Although, like many nonprofits, you know, you also have— I think we all know <laughs> public radio can be a little boring, a little lifeless. It's not really always the most creatively ambitious culture— and it's all fitting through a very tiny keyhole, which is basically morning and afternoon drive time on public radio stations. And so all of the work of all of the people who knew about, who thought about audio, had to go through this very yeah. tiny little door. And that door was really not controlled by the listener. It was controlled by this character called the member station program director, which is a really idiosyncratic group of people who I don't think their interests are always or their tastes are always aligned with the audience. And just by the nature of technology, you needed audio, radio technology. You needed content that, you know, an 80-year-old in South Carolina and a 25-year-old in San Francisco would both find exciting. And just on a dime— suddenly you can deliver audio directly to the consumer. And there's a group of us at NPR who noted this very early, and we're like, this is a total transformation. No longer is our audience a small group of member station presidents and, board and program it's directors. Wants it's everyone it. wants to listen, and they get to vote actively. They're not just going to turn on Morning Edition or All Things yep. Considered or turn it off, they're... It's thrilling and terrifying. It's thrilling and terrifying. If and you're it, someone who you can have your audience cut in half by that, or much more, and you can find an audience you never you never found. That's that's the thrill yeah. of internet media. But the reason my claim is this is very generalizable is it's very similar to accountants. You could generally, accountants were kind of like dry cleaners. They were largely geographically, you know, you, yep. you were the accountant of Greenville, South Carolina, or you were the accountant of this neighborhood in Brooklyn or whatever. 
and your customers were from there, so you had to have general skills because you might have a dry cleaner and a restaurant. And, and even if you're a big firm, your offerings have to be fairly broad to right. appeal to a lot of people because the ability to convey information, how is the accountant on Prospect Park West in Brooklyn going to communicate to some business in Las Vegas what their unique offerings are? They're not even going to try. But now they can do that, and they can really narrowly focus. We're really good at trusts or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Or we, I mean, I remember meeting a graphic design firm, and they said, what we focus on is medium-sized hospitals in third-tier markets. The graphic design needs of that group. Uh And you might think, do they have such unique needs? Are there enough of them? Turns out, yes. They have very specific needs, and there are a lot of them. And if you are the medium-sized hospital and third-tier market graphic design company, no one else is out there saying, no, no, we're, you're only the fifth best. We're the best. You know, it, you kind of own that niche, and they're coming to you. You're not going out there pitching because you know their needs deeply. You know you're talking to people who aren't these big national ch- healthcare chains, but they're also not a completely local, municipally funded, you know, broke firm. So you you know a lot about their business and how graphic design fits into it. And that is generalizable, that that idea that you can reach, you can identify a niche and you can use the internet and other shipping and logistics tools, et cetera, to reach. And Jason Blummer, the accountant, when he was a general kind of accountant to people in Greenville, South Carolina. He had hundreds and hundreds of clients. And he told me he made like 60 grand a year. Now he has 40 clients. He doesn't want more. And he makes many, many multiples of 60 grand a year. And I am one of those clients. I pay him a lot of money. And I'm happy to pay him that money because he has figured out that he is uniquely good at working with creative professionals, people who have a creative passion but aren't, and this is embarrassing to say as a finance journalist, aren't particularly good at managing their budgets. I I know those people. And he can partner with you to help you thrive. And so I'm willing to pay him far more than I, I could easily find accountants here in New York that I could pay much less. But because his skill set and his offerings are so specific to my needs. One last book question before we take a break yeah. so we can get a commercial and helps keep me employed. I was going through your rules. Um, several of them are counterintuitive. Is there one big mistake you think people who are trying to do this are making um, that you can help them solve right now? The thing that looks like common sense, but actually they're doing it 100% wrong. I mean, I'd say the two obvious ones, I'm sorry, I'm going to throw two out. All right. I'd say Almost everyone charges too little and says yes too often. That th- so we, just hit, we, just hit, we just hit on one of those, right? Yeah, exactly. Say no to more customers and charge the ones who you do work with a lot more money. And that can be, it, for small business people, this is a crisis. This is terrifying. The very idea of saying no to customers and the very idea, I mean, Jason Blummer, that accountant, what he'll tell his clients is just double your prices. And he wants to provoke a crisis. He wants people, the graphic designers and whatever, to say, wait, how could I do that? How would I justify it? And then, all right, let's do that exercise. Why are you worth twice as much? And if you're not figured out. 
figure it out. The other big, big, big one is don't charge by the hour. <laughs> if you're a lawyer, if you're a graphic designer, if you're anything, don't charge by the hour. Nobody wants an hour of graphic design or an hour of an accountant. They want a project, and the project has a value. And you might be able to deliver that value in four minutes, and someone else, it might take them 40 hours. They shouldn't make more money than you. You should, um, you should charge based on the value, not, not the time or cost. Okay, good. Right. That's the part I read. And speaking of products and value, here's someone to tell you about something that's awesome that you should know about. We'll be right back with Adam Davidson. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Back here with Adam Davidson. We've been talking a little about podcasting. We're going to talk more about podcasting, which presumably you're okay hearing about because you're listening to a podcast, and it's going to get very meta here. But let's talk about the podcasting business, um, how you got into it, and what you're doing now. We, I referenced Giant Pool of Money. That came out of an NPR show. For a while, you were li- I would listen to things from NPR like This American Life, and I didn't think about whether they were a podcast or not, but I was certainly listening to them on demand. Right. That's where we're headed now. Yes, um, yeah, I had this um, real wake-up, like around 2005, where a friend of mine called me who was a kind of internet guy, and he told me, I was listening to All Things Considered, the NPR yeah. afternoon drive time show, and a story came on that I didn't find that interesting, and I looked for the button that allowed me to fast-forward, and it wasn't there because I was listening on the radio. And then there was a story I really liked, and I looked for the button that allowed me to listen to more, and it wasn't there. I remember it's the racing radio. home on like a Sunday night so I could listen to This American Life yes. and thinking— this is fun, but also stupid. Yeah, right. I should listen to this whenever I want. Yeah. And so in my world, like, you know, depending on who you talk to, podcasting began either in 2003 or 2008 or 2015 or whatever. In my world, it really began in 2008. That was a crucial year where in my world of NPR, we had gone from just taking long-form radio shows and putting them on the radio to actually creating content for podcasting. And I would say Planet Money was, you know, I'll flatter myself and say that was a big step in that direction. For a while, we were a daily news podcast in the middle of the financial crisis. Eventually, we went down to two days a week. Mm -hmm. And 
we were playing with a lot of ideas, some of which stood the test of time, some of which really didn't. But something that we were really aware of was it's a totally different relationship with the audience because, I mean, just an example I use, I, I was a reporter on at NPR for a long time. And in my entire career, I maybe got two letters. And when we started Planet Money, there were people back, I remember when we got to 50,000 listeners, which at the time was unimaginably large for podcasting. But Morning Edition, all things considered, they reach tens of millions of people a yep. week. And so there are people at NPR like, why are you wasting your time? But those 50,000 were reacting with a passion. We were, I mean, we were deluged with yep. emails and letters and calls. You know, suddenly I would say my name at a party in Brooklyn and people would know who I was because of Planet Money. I mean, you just felt so viscerally that there's listening passively to a broadcast show that's built around three-minute pieces that, are designed to reach everyone in America is different than a 20-minute show where you took an action to listen. Everyone who spends any amount of time thinking about podcasting, making a podcast, talking about it, describes the same thing, right? I reach an audience of whatever, and it's small, but the people are really into it, and it's a connection in a way I've never had before. Do you think that's just endemic to the product, or do you think over time as it scales up and podcasting just becomes on-demand audio and you're not really thinking about whether you're listening to live radio or, or something that's been recorded, that that, be, that the, and it, as it gets broader, that that passion sort of leaches out or just by the very nature of reaching a larger audience, you're on, that core of people who still have to seek out a podcast today becomes less interested. Or, they don't become less interested, but you're reaching more, you eventually will reach more people and they by just some sort of mathematical equation will be less passionate about it. I will say that I want to fight for keeping the passion. Yeah, and, and I think that there are some big choices that we all will make. And this really, 2019, was very much a year where major media companies were beginning to see podcasting as something to take very seriously. And or at invest. least take a flyer on, yeah. right? I would say, yes, take a flyer, but a, substan a flyer, yes. It's in, a lot of money for you and me. It's a huge for them, amount for us, yes. side bets and hedges. Yes, we're still in the... Well, I, I mean, heart radio, for instance, now describes, and I tell a story a bunch, and I'll keep it short, where we were launching a podcast a few years ago, and we went to Bob Pittman because we knew him, and he said, what do you think about this idea? And he said, that's a terrible idea. You should do terrestrial radio. Cut to, he's now running iHeartRadio still, and and they now are proudly announcing that they have a podcast strategy and they're the biggest podcaster in the world, according to their right, stats. Right. Um, but it is still a subset of a subset of their business for now. Yes, for us, tens and hundreds of millions are unimaginable. I mean, yes. the entire news budget of NPR is like $100 million and, you know, a year. And, you know, Spotify spent a lot, many multiples of that this year. The um, biggest story <laughs> was about Spotify buying Gimlet for $230 million. And in tech and media world in general, that's a nothing. That's a nothing. Whereas right? for us, it's, it's Tim the Cook's most, fuel budget, yeah. right? And for us, it's, it's too, is it too much money? Is there a podcasting bubble? Yeah. It's it's a it's and if it by the way if it if it turns out terribly for Spotify it's a non-event for them as well it, it it doesn't matter I mean they would very much like it to work but if it doesn't that's also okay that's also okay yeah so here here's my view that audio has had a weird history independent from other media that visual media movies TV film even just consumer video already by the time you and I were born certainly by the you know by the fifties sixties seventies these are there's a whole bunch of different 
channels, a whole bunch of different monetization strategies, a whole bunch of ways of consuming that content. Music certainly has had a very rich recorded music, you know, 100-year history. Print has had, you know, thousands of years of history. And certainly by the time I came of age as a magazine writer, there were so many different career paths, so many different types of content. But audio, non-music audio, long-form storytelling audio really was, there were no very few commercial radio. I mean, we could point, you know, there's in the 50s, there were radio plays, and then there were the occasional, like, great hosts. But in the 90s, when I was learning long form, so thinking about audio that's longer than 10 or 20 minutes, and that is designed to really engage a listener with some degree of finesse and artistry. And there's, I think I could probably name everyone who was even interested in learning how to do that. And most of them worked for Ira Glass. Yeah. And, and now, they all, now they all have their own podcast <laughs> and now they, yeah, Well, actually, many of them still work with Ira. There really is the core group still there. But the point I'm making is there was a flip, a switch flipped from passive consumption to active consumption to choosing what you want and from very narrow bandwidth of content that other people chose to hundreds of thousands of pieces of content. So to me, that is a one-time change from a world of less passion and more passivity to more passion and more engagement. Um, so I, I think that will, some degree of that will always continue. But how it's monetized yeah. and, and how the business works will have a huge impact. And, you know, if you look at blogs, you know, there was a period where blogging was a re- – and everybody blogging was a vital, active, exciting part it of our culture. passionate. It seemed fun. It seemed like maybe you could make money doing it, but not a lot. And then the, the tradition – then everyone – most people discovered – actually, no one's reading my blog. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm done. Um, and then the blogs that became bigger and more successful eventually scaled up into media companies, and that's sort of the story of Vox Media. And now we're in a world where there's this push for scale, 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 yeah, scale, exactly. scale, because the CPMs keep going down. Right. When Ezra bigger. was in his room typing yeah. really smart sentences and Matt Iglesias. And, um, and so we're still doing smart yeah. stuff, and we're still doing stuff that reaches a, a band of people. It's not for everyone, but it, increasingly we have to reach more and more people. And so, I, again, I think if, if the blogging metaphor is the podcast metaphor, are we going to end up at some point like that where the 50,000-person podcast is, is no longer a viable thing, whatever the metric is? Right. Now, I'm going to say some things that I— can get yelled at on Twitter good, about, although good. most things can get yelled at on Twitter about, is I hope that we have many more avenues of monetization in podcasting. Right now, it's largely ad-supported. That's we love the, ads. And I love ads, and my new company will be ad-supported. But I think when you look at high-quality work of any kind, of high-quality media, it's usually not solely ad-supported. It's usually there's some way in which the consumer is paying money, whether that's Netflix or HBO or The New Yorker. There's some user fee component. And, you know, I'm now the CEO of a podcast company, and I sit and I look at the budgets, and it's really hard to justify taking the extra time to tell a very complicated story that you're only going to tell over a short number of episodes in a purely ad-supported way. Ads really want frequency. They want relatively low-cost production. And I like 
you know, this is what in the business we call a two-way podcast. Yep. I like two-way podcasts, but I also like, you know, the kind of New Yorkery, this mm-hmm. American life, like deeper storytelling, et cetera. It, it's just never going to make economic sense until there's users voting with their dollars in some way. And I know some people hear that and think, oh, you're asking me to take something that's right now free and pay for it. That's not good. But I think what I'm arguing is you're not going to have that good thing until Mm -hmm. you pay for it, and that's okay. It'll be better, and it'll be more for you than if you just allow it ad-supported. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that we go more in a direction of mass corporate um, channels and, and, you know, that podcasting is an add-on serving the broader aims of Disney or Apple or whoever, where I think I, I do think audio is its own art form. It, it, it has its own benefits and weaknesses, and, and, and we want people really specialized in that content. So that is, um, I feel like I can see a rosy picture where there's just more and better content that we love, and I can see a darker picture where there, where podcasting does become kind of generic And you switch commercial. metaphors, right? There's McDonald's, and that serves a purpose, and you and I live in neighborhoods full of, of bespoke, artisanal— Exactly. Rest- uh, and actually, those aren't probably sustainable business long-term, but they're, they can do okay in, in yeah. for some period of time. Let's talk about your business specifically. This is a joint venture between you and Sony. Yes, my my co-founder, Laura Mayer, and I actually decided to start a small bespoke uh, podcasting company. We did not want outside investors because the opportunity we saw was to create that high-quality stuff, to be ready when the market shifts and allows allows for user fees. We also felt that the precious resource in podcasting right now is kind of behind the scenes talent the producers and uh, folks who see that guys exactly. the precious resources <laughs> yeah i feel like people like you and me who go on mike we're important but we're not as unique like as yeah, now zach smiling yeah. i can yeah, fucking kafka we can hire a lot of hosts but people who really know how to just think about audio yeah. how to shape audio and then how to do the technical skills there's just not enough to meet the demand but the way you get those people and the way you keep those people is you actually create a culture that they want to work at. So you you want to make, you want to be your, I'm trying to f- figure the, I don't know, uh, is Fauda, is that still a place in uh, in, in Park Slope? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to name a Park Slope restaurant. Sure. Uh, uh, the the cool, gross, Grocery? Uh, the groovy Korean place across from Aldi La that I yeah, went. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. So you, you, your premise is we're going to make that, um, we're going to make Aldi La, um, but you still went and got money from Sony. Well, so so, so yeah. something happened. <laughs> Sony was interested in podcasting. Um, they called us in and said, hey, can you? we'd like to meet with you. And Laura and I had made a decision. We're not taking venture money. We got o- some offers that we felt would just destroy our premise. We're not taking corporate money. We're just going to do this on our own. That's the only way we'll have freedom. And frankly, we felt like if we end up not making money, that's okay. Like we'd rather... We want to make money. We're business people. But we'd rather do this in a way that was for us with integrity than just just make a lot of Mm -hmm. money. So, you know, I'm 50. I'm like, I feel like I got a couple big things left and and I don't want to, you know, anyway, I don't want to waste my time just making money. I I like money, but I don't like it that much. So, um, So we had this meeting with Sony. We were meeting with various people. There's a lot of, you know, as you know, a lot of heat in the podcast area. And we would go to these with a lot of skepticism. And it it felt like, you know, uh, 
a real good self-help guidance because we went to Sony Music almost annoyed. Like, another corporation wants free advice on how to do podcasting. And we were very polite, but we met with the senior leadership team and just shot down all their ideas and told them that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. What was their dumbest idea? I mean, they weren't terrible ideas. What was their dumbest idea? I mean, I'd say the— there was a f- lack of urgency. Uh-huh. There was a feeling like, yeah, we'll dip our toe in, and maybe a year or two from now, we'll decide whether or not to invest. And we are like, oh, it'll all be gone by then. If you—now is when big companies either get in and, and take leadership, or you'll just never catch up, It was our sense. unless you, Or you'll just have to pay so much more money to catch up that it might not be worth it. Another thing that we felt we had to clarify, which I think— they they were responsive to was you can't simultaneously create podcasts that are successful as podcasts and see them as marketing vehicles for your artists. That those are just two different approaches. And you could do one, you could do the other, you could do them both simultaneously, but they're different things. They're different things. And so like a week later, they called and said, All right, you convinced us. <laughs> and we're like, wait, no, we didn't. We we want to partner with you. And Sony Music really likes this model of a sort of 50-50 joint venture with a creative team. You know, they 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 actually, I music think— Music labels do a lot of these. Music labels do a lot. They actually like that it's sort of—you kind of have to fight everything through, that it's not 60-40 where one mm-hmm. side just gets to call the shots. You actually have to figure things out together. And so that's what we have. So Laura and I have total editorial, operational independence. Sony doesn't give us really any input on the content we create. And what do they want out of it? Sony's in music is investing big in podcasting generally. Um, we're their major um, con- original content play, but they're partnering with a ton of content producers. And they just see a huge opportunity. Um, I'd say that for what they've really sold me on is that content creation is a very specific skill set that is totally different from being a tech company creating product and platform. That working with artists, understanding that artistic or creative work is not just a continuous bunch of sprints through some agile process where you try this and then you take data and then you try the next iteration and then you take data. That it involves huge jump conditions. It involves making bets on really underformed artists today and a bunch of them so that three years from now when music completely changes, you're in a position to jump. And they see that as their specialties. But they want, just to be nuts and boltsy about it, they want you to make podcasts that are successful, that make money, and they will keep half of that money, presumably. But you've made it clear that you don't want to be in the business of making promotional podcasts about Beyonce. Yeah, and they don't want us to do that. They will be doing that. They'll be doing tons of that. So you are are their bespoke (laughs) podcast studio and if we're all right and podcasts can just grow and there's demand for that stuff, you will feed some of that demand and they will benefit exactly. that way. And the pressure on us is, I mean, they certainly want us to be making money along the way and, yep. and having large audiences, but they really emphasize taking creative risks and focusing on deep engagement rather than large numbers. So that whole thing we talked about, they really feel that this market demands, particularly if you look at the music labels, they don't get money directly from a listener. They're they wholesalers. Get the, they're wholesalers. And in a streaming world, there's incremental money, but it's really about 
at the end of the day, being able to say to the digital service providers, Apple and Spotify, and there's hundreds of them, but those are the yep. big ones, being able to say to them implicitly in a friendly way, boy, people really seem to like Beyonce. be a shame if she wasn't on your yep. platform. And if you don't have that engagement, you don't have bargaining power. And, you know, where Sony Music, as I understand it, has made the decision. We're not going to be that product company that's creating that the thing the listener looks at and pays money to. We're going to be creating the content that that provider gets. And they see podcasting as very similar, that in, in the near term, we're going to be making money by advertising. Was this happening concurrently while, while Spotify was making, like, did, we, did you know that Spotify had made this big bet on on uh, podcasting by buying Gimlet and some other companies, or, or was this that happening That overlapped, that overlapped. So this is Sony reacting to, uh-oh, Spotify is now getting into podcasting, and if, if they're successful, they're going to box us out of that. Yeah, it's hard to remember the exact dates. I know our early conversations were pre-Gimlet mm -hmm. purchase, and then it took us a few months to negotiate the deal, and that was definitely after. I mean, I'm a, I was yeah. a— one of the first investors in Gimlet, so I, I was good very aware. Well, not so good. Um, there's a lot of dilution of the early friends and family. Still, but yeah, something. I, it was all right. It was all right. Um, so, so, yeah, and I would say, I mean, I think Sony Music would be open about, you know, there's a defensive and offensive play. That The defensive play is, hey, lots of people are listening to this category of thing called not music. And if we allow that to go without us having a say in it, all we're going to see is decreased time spent listening. But there's a real offensive play, which is, oh, these are the, <laughs> this is that thing where creative people need to be treated in a certain way. They need to be coddled a bit. They need to be given a safe space. And just the finance of managing a portfolio of highly risky and unpredictable IP of content is just a completely different thing than managing a data-focused product business where you're able to incrementally build based on the latest build. It's just the fundamental DNA of such a company, who you hire, how decisions are made, the timing of decisions. I'm, I'm stuck on the, the dilution. I want you to do and I want you to do it because I didn't do it. I want you to explain, I was an investor in a company that had a big successful exit. Here's how much money I made. And here's why I think that is a good or bad thing. Um, not now, not now. I want you to make this as a special Yeah, and podcast. I should say. Because I, you were saying people aren't good about money, and one of the reasons is we don't talk honestly about it. I agree. I agree. And I actually, Adam McKay and I, because we, we also with Sony have a joint yeah. venture with Adam McKay, which is going to be really fun to create podcasts. But he and I want to do a show where we just have people on, where we make them say how much they make, and we kind of figure out, do you have you earned it or not? I did fine by the Spotify sale. It's just I didn't. I wasn't a huge investor. Yeah. I was a small investor. And it's just the nature of these things that the early friends and family tend to be, you know, I would, I remember— You gave him 5000 bucks or 10000 I gave bucks him 10000 bucks, which I told my wife, look, I don't think we're getting this back, but, you know, we're helping out our friend and didn't really think much of it. And didn't, you know, I would get the investor reports. I wouldn't read them that carefully. And then the next round is like Chris Saka mm -hmm. and like big— you know, people who Bigger all fish. they do is this yep. and they have a team of lawyers and and um, and so they're able to d argue for and demand things that I just I didn't think about. So um, so I did totally fine. I did totally fine. What did fine. that $10,000 turn into? 
Um, Let's talk about to sex. Say? Yes, sure. All right, uh, like a hundred, a little over a hundred, which great. is not bad. That's great a great for you. return. Everyone That's would be a very happy return. to have that. Yeah, I'm, and thank I, you for talking about sex on my podcast. Yes, I would happy be. You yes, I, I was very happy to have that money. Let's talk about Adam McKay briefly. Sure, um, who I love, and uh, I was lucky to get to go see him. Uh, years ago, uh, when I would go to see the Upright Citizens Brigade, oh, wow. and they would bring Back in, in the day. they would bring in all their pals from Saturday Night Live, and he was just this big burly guy who wasn't on screen very much, but was amazing, yeah, uh, on the stage. So he's the director of The Big Short, um, as and well as the Anchorman movies, Tom Anchorman Nights, movies, Vice, yeah. Uh, Vice. Did he have a movie out this year? I guess Vice was Vice was his a last movie. Ago. He's working. Yeah. He's actually in Ireland right now, writing his next movie. He um, he also was. Very much a creative force behind Succession on HBO. Yep. I mean, it, uh, he didn't, you know, the um, um, directed the first episode. Directed the first episode and really helped shepherd it through. Yeah, so I can see a through line between the stuff you've made and the stuff he's making, and you guys partnered at one point. Yeah, we we met when he was in the very beginning of thinking about the Big Short. Um, my brother was an executive at Paramount Pictures and had a meeting with him and was like, "Oh, my my brother Adam knows all that money stuff," and. McKay and I had an initial call, which, um, so this was five years ago. You know, I think I was expecting, oh, I love his funny, silly movies, and he's not going to know anything about money and not care. Yeah. And I think he was thinking, oh, I'm going to talk to some boring finance guy who's going to lecture me about interest rates or something. And we just hit it off big. You know, I am from this mm -hmm. theater artist background, and I wanted to be a playwright earlier in my life. And so I was, and I, I, had at least a sensitivity to, if not any skill in, like, character development and all that. And then he's the most, cons I mean, he's truly in my life, The per we've become extremely close friends, and he's the most passionate, just curious person I know. He's just on fire all day, every day, wanting to soak up the world. And so we just fell into this instant relationship of, I mean, he's, I would say, Several notches more left than I am, although I'm certainly, you know, left of center, but I, he's, you know, more in the Bernie camp if than I am. If you're not following on Twitter, Ghost Panther <laughs> yeah, is, the, yeah, is the Twitter exactly. handle. He's fun. Um, but when we don't, we certainly don't agree on everything and we don't, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be fun if we did, um, but we argue and discuss and talk constantly about everything, but including economics. And working on The Big Short with him, I worked very closely with him on writing the script. And then on set, it was so much fun. I got to, like, I was the guy who explained to Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling what these, and Steve Carell, et cetera, what these weird lines meant, because they were essentially speaking in a foreign language, and I would try and translate it Explain for them. Explain what CDN is. Yeah, and I worked, CDO. CDO, yeah. thank you. I worked with them on uh, the set design and uh, the uh, the costume. You know what, what different and kinds then of. And traditionally, that's like, oh, you get a taste of Hollywood. You get to hang out with Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. I didn't meet like, Margot, but I but did this, hang out with Brad Pitt but quite a bit. This is what I'm going to be doing now. I'm going to be trying to figure out how I can get back here. I'm going to find other projects that are going to get me on set. I'm going to write my own script. I'm going to. This is this is where I should be going. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I think because my dad's an actor, my brother's a you Hollywood executive. I know. I mean, and my brother was like, you know, I've been in this business for 20 years, and you just show up, and your first project is Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell. Did Carrell, he work at DreamWorks? Christian. He did not. He okay, worked I'm confusing at, with someone else. Okay. Yeah, he worked at Paramount, and uh, most of his career at Paramount. He's now an independent producer. Very good. Evan Davidson. So, um, but McKay and I have just been creative partners ever since. We had a one of the first podcasts on Gimlet called Surprisingly Awesome. Are you going to do something? Have you announced what you're doing with him? Just we have not. He and I will have a show, but then we're launching a slate of shows, uh, many shows that both that kind of some 
kind of like him, kind of like me, <laughs> some pretty silly, some pretty serious. And he is, in addition to being one of the most curious people, he's true. My whole world is podcasters. He, Adam McKay, is the most passionate consumer and thinker about podcasting. Oh, I, I got to get him in. I heard him on uh, Bill Simmons. He oh, yeah. Great, no, great you, you should get, he listens to everything. He knows way more podcasts than I do. And he has very keen insights into them. All right. Come into, come into Recode Media soon. Yeah. Yeah. Adam McKay, going from Adam McKay and lefties and Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump, um, you're performing a very good service for us last few years, writing a lot about Trump, explaining in great detail, very convincingly that um, he's, in, I mean, obviously we knew he was corrupt, but sort of explaining what a bad businessman he was um, and how the Trump organization is is even flimsier than we thought. But there was a piece that I have thought about a lot since the first day you published it, and I think about it all the time now. Maybe you know what I'm going to reference. Uh, it's April 2018. The headline is Michael Cohen in the end stage of the Trump presidency. And the premise is you were in Iraq and you saw early on things are really bad here. People don't realize how bad they are and that you were covering the financial crisis before it became a financial crisis and you had insight into that. And you were looking – the premise here was this is the same thing, that the, the Trump – the criminality of the Trump enterprise is going to be fully exposed starting now. And when people get a sense of how bad all of this is, that's that's the end. So we're at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Um, there's a very good possibility that Trump remains president for another four plus years. In retrospect, do you think you got something wrong or do you think the premise of that piece is still correct? You know, it, it is um, a terrible idea to make a prediction, <laughs> a, a big dramatic prediction. Although it certainly, good got a lot of, certainly got a lot of shares and, and, and coverage. And I certainly felt it honestly at the time. So I am one of a group of people, David Farenthold, Andrea Bernstein, Jesse Eisinger, uh, I could name many yeah. others, certainly Tim O'Brien. There's a group of journalists who deeply know Trump's business. And there's a group of people who are business people who are from Trump world, who yep. deeply know Trump's business. And when you know that, it is beyond shocking that there has been so little price paid because his business— and, and I don't feel that this is a controversial statement. I mean, it, it is an accurate fact-based statement. The work I've done has not been challenged by the Trump organization. In fact— He just had to pay a $2 million fine, fine. And, yeah. and agree not to but run a charity in But it's darker than York. that. Yeah. He, he knowingly participated in money laundering operations for the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard. He has eagerly, happily done business with an entire— spectrum of bad actors who were specifically using his name to further and hide their um, schemes. And it is not, as some people like to say, just how business works. Yep. This, this is extreme outlier business. It's extremely risky business. And it seems he's even terrible at that, <laughs> that he makes far less money than he could, right. given that he's willing to take these wild and irresponsible risks. And when I wrote that piece, I guess now I have to call it a fantasy, although perhaps one day, time will tell, that there would be a moment when there would be that clarifying event that would show that, that, that would allow, you know, 
not the 25% or whatever that is the hardcore never who are going to love Trump more when they find out. There'd be something, the sunlight would hit this in such a way that that people would have their eyes open and they go, I used to, I wanted to believe otherwise, but now I'm confronted with this evidence. I got to change my mind. Exactly. And so in the case of the Iraq war, those of us who are in Iraq, I mean, I arrived, the statue fell on a Thursday. I was in Basra in the south of Iraq on that Thursday. I got to Baghdad that Sunday. It was clear within days, this is a disaster of historic proportions. This is, and, and people don't remember, but for several months, it was covered as a wild success. Yep. I remember coming home on vacation, and even my lefty New York Brooklyn friends were like, well, I guess we were wrong. I guess it worked out. None of them remember saying this, but it was true. And so I have had that experience of seeing, oh, it's irrefutable. Like if I sat you down and spent a few hours just walking you through just numbers mm-hmm. and dates and un, total, not theories, but actual unre- irrefutable claims, you'd say, oh, he's some variant on a money launderer for the worst people on earth. That's bad. Like whether, you know, there's technical issues that govern whether it's illegal or not mm-hmm. and whether a president can be convicted, et cetera. This is going on now. This is not back in the day. And that I just, and I guess I still have to say, I believe there will be that moment. This Ukrainian phone call is a different thing than what I'm describing. What I'm describing is right now today, I feel there is strong evidence that right now today, there's money flowing from some very bad actors into Trump's personal bank accounts and that he's going to enormous length to hide that fact from us. My instinct is it's probably illegal. I've shared this with a lot of former prosecutors who think it's probably illegal. There's With finance, there's always technical ways to do something really scummy, but not make he, it technically he's not illegal. hiring the best people to yeah, make that legal. But it's certainly bad, and it's certainly disqualifying. And But that was the premise of—that was not the premise. Yeah. But the, with the Ukraine thing, that was, oh, well, Mueller uncovered all this evidence, made a convincing case. It was somehow too complicated— uh, for people to figure out, but but Ukraine is so much easier. And what it seems to me what we are learning over and over again is we are now maybe past some point where where you can persuade people of things um, if they have either political or other craven reasons to not believe it. Yes, exactly. Which is terrifying. Which is terrifying. Because, and this is the flip side of the passion economy, I do think that we are at a pivotal moment in human history as well, which is, you know, certainly in the 90s and in the early 2000s, it felt like there was this tide of progress, you know, the end of history, all of that, that sort of we were moving towards a world where money was created through value creation and that there was this thing called the corrupt oligarch or whatever that was existed but was a dying thing, that the economies and countries that became more democratic, more open. And the internet was part of this. The it internet was, was bringing information exactly. to people, and that was going to make them less likely to be tyrants. The Arab Spring, yep. you know, Twitter made you feel like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I know this. Like the arc of yeah. history bends towards justice, and I, it really feels like right now, it is neck and neck. Like the countries that are rooted in oligarchic corruption are poorer, more violent undemocratic countries because the way you make and keep money is either directly through physical violence or through the threat of physical violence. And countries that are rooted in actually creating value are 
far more democratic, far safer, far more pleasant. And that to me is where we are right now, that there's a million political reasons, there's a million moral reasons to object to the Trump presidency, but and the collapse of the Republican Party is a any kind of check, even for their own values, because theoretically, you know, the Reagan Knight values were very much in line with this opening and and I think the stakes feel that high. I mean, I've, I remember talking to Ezra Klein on his show a few years ago about the terror of the smart Trump, the people who are yep. looking at this oafish jackass and thinking, all right, he he played up and down on the bankruptcy line, you know, a few million up, a few million down, but I could make billions. I could be— right. he's, he's, he's opened this up for us. Yeah, I could be the Hosni Mubarak, uh, the Vladimir Putin of America. All I have to do is just be a little less oafish, a li- use a little more finesse, and hide my crimes just a touch better. And that truly scares the shit out of me. But— the Passion Economy is a great book. <laughs> that is the positive. <laughs> I was going to try to figure out a segue <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to end this. It's we a start, tough, we yeah. start with technology-fueled optimism when we end with the, the, the collapse of the United States. Welcome to 2020. Both are possible. Yeah. Adam Davidson, thank you for coming. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks thank to you, you guys Peter. for listening. Zach and Jelani, thanks for not firing me on the first podcast of the new year. Thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.